Hello, and welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you here for this episode. I'm C.R. Wiley, a pastor of a church in the Pacific Northwest, and I've written a few books, including In the House of Tom Bombadil. I've been recently installed as a senior editor at uh, Touchstone Magazine. I'm not the senior editor at Touchstone Magazine. There's actually a bunch of us, uh, like 10. (laughs) Anyway, but the uh, managing editor is someone who actually does all the day work. And, uh, but anyway, enough about me. How how about you, Glenn? How about uh, introducing yourself? I'm Glenn Sunshine, retired history professor, senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, Ministry Associated Reflections Ministries, and freelance teacher, speaker, whatever. All around good guy. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Tom. I'm Tom Price, and I don't want to preempt our guest, but um, um, Tom Price, who was a Price that took over the Clary name in my side of the family, um, <laughs> it was Price Clary uh, at one time. <laughs> but anyway, I'm Tom Price. I teach uh, theology and ethics, uh, and I teach both at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Hmm. Okay, great. And uh, speaking of Clary, we have Michael Clary with us. And uh, Michael, why don't you introduce yourself for the folks out there in podcast land? Yeah, Michael Clary and yeah, Thomas. I'm. I'm. Uh, I, I want to hear the story now. Some maybe <laughs> maybe sometime uh, other than the show. But Michael Clary is uh, my name. I planted Christ the King Church in Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, close to the University of Cincinnati, uh, about 15 years ago. And uh, been here ever since. Uh, we are uh, officially uh, aligned with Southern Baptist Convention, um, but we're more on the Tom Askell wing of the denomination. So, um, yep, that's me. We know those guys. We like them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, great, great to have you with us, Michael. So, Michael and I got to know each other a few years back. I was uh, at a conference in Cincinnati, uh, and we connected while I was there and had lunch and got to know each other a little bit. And then Michael wrote a book uh, entitled God's A Good Design, A Biblical, Theological, and Practical Guide to Human Sexuality, and I was honored to to blurb it. And uh, anyway, uh, we're going to be talking about some things related to the subject matter uh, you address in the book. But what prompted uh, this conversation we're having today is something that was in World Magazine. So I write for World, and I know a lot of folks out there in our audience subscribe to World. I I write for the op-ed page online, so I don't actually write for the print edition. I just write for, you know, the daily op-eds that come out. I've done that a few times. But uh, the title of the article is uh, Main Line Slide, and then the subtitle is The Push to Accept Homosexuality, Gutted Traditional Protestantism. Uh, evangelical churches are headed down the same road. Now, there's a thought that <laughs> disturbs, uh, and I think for many people, they thought it would never happen. Um, I uh, was at one time kind of a, a voice in the wilderness mm. saying it's going to happen. Back in the late 90s and the early 2000s, I could see uh, the transition at the uh, the level of the intelligentsia in, in the evangelical world. And I knew that it was only a matter of time. And then, of course, things, uh, the kind of the avalanche occurred, uh, you know, with the Supreme Court, you know, uh, uh, decision concerning so-called gay marriage and so forth. And then, you know, we've had a number of things kind of percolating 
within evangelicalism. And it's not like it, it was something that hadn't always been uh, sort of, uh, sort of, you know, something to be thinking about and concerned about. Um, sin is something that um, has been around a long, long time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's not like, you know, in the course of my ministry, I never ha- had to, to address somebody who was struggling with homosexuality before, you know, 2020. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was dealing with this back in the 1980s and, and earlier, you know. So anyway, with, with people I was ministering to. So this is, there's nothing new about it, but what is new about it seems to be uh, a lack of resolve, mm-hmm. uh, perhaps uh, the conviction growing that if you can't beat them, join them, uh, that kind of stuff. Uh, anyway, um, that's that's the gist of it. So we have Michael here because he was quoted in the article, and I thought it'd be good to get your take, Michael, um, kind of the, the overall trajectory of things and maybe your reflections on it, and we'll have plenty to, to reflect on because I know we all have things to say about this. But uh, why don't you just fill us in a little bit on your take on what's going on in the broader evangelical world and maybe how it relates to this particular article. Yeah, the thing that I've noticed, and I've, I've seen other people write about this, so I'm, this is not an original observation, but that does seem to be a significant uh, fault line where whether or not a Christian accepts homosexuality is a it's a deal breaker uh, for the faith. So for some people, if they're in a church that will not endorse or affirm homosexuality, um, they 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 find that to be like you know t- totally regressive and even, maybe even oppressive and not loving and not Christ-like. Um, and this has been happening for for a long time in the more progressive type churches, the mainline churches, they've been, they've been dabbling in this for some time, but the, it's, I think probably one of the things that really stood out to me as a shocking development was when the PCA uh, hosted the Revoice Conference, at least a PCA affiliated churches hosted the Revoice Conference, which to me, I was just like, this is, this is a slippery slope. Um, And (laughs) some slopes truly are slippery. And, uh, The one of the um, there's a quote that I that I put in my book that I thought really summed it up well because there's a David Gushy who was very well known um, former uh, more conservative theologian, but he adopted a pro homosexuality position in 2016, and whenever he did this, this was a year after Obergefell uh, decision came yep. down uh, creating gay marriage, so called. But here's what he said. He said, uh, regarding homosexuality, he said, neutrality is not an option, neither is polite half-acceptance, nor is avoiding the subject. Hide as you might, the issue will come and find you. And when I first read that quote, uh, it's been some years ago, I was like, that's it. And this is a pro-homosexuality guy, and he's saying, this will will run through every church, dividing, affirming, and non-affirming, every Christian organization, every denomination, every Christian college, um, every Christian household even, where the we can't kick the can down the road. It will we'll all be forced to deal with it, face it. And what we're seeing now with Andy Stanley and some of the other organizations that have made the news in this regard lately is it's it's landing in their living room and Sadly, many of them are choosing to accommodate for the sake of preserving the organization and uh, 
it, they think that this is the way that we keep the organization going is we have to cave on this issue to to live another day and to keep the lights on. So it's I I see it as everywhere and I don't see it going away. It's going to keep coming. And so we might as well eat our broccoli now and choose <laughs> we have to take a hard stand, a bold stand out loud in public and not cave. Right. Now, the thing about this that is tremendously perplexing for me is uh, it's the same thing with like uh, women's ordination. So there's this this capitulation on a, on, a, on a matter of principle in the name of being up to date or, uh, you know, even, you know, uh, doing, you know, the just thing or whatever. And then uh, when the when the, this becomes um, accepted and uh, broadly practiced, it leads to a vat, you know, it's a, it's a, a, a exodus of people from the church. So, so, you know, we, we can look over and see how this has worked for the main line mm -hmm. <laughs> and say, well, why do we expect it would work any different for us? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. I've, fact, I've there's, argued there's a, that evangelicals for a long time are busy reinventing the flat tire. That's Yeah. So, uh, here's a quote from the article until the 1960s, more than half of all American adults align with one of the seven mainline products denominations. Okay, pretty impressive. You know, so we're talking about 50% and more. According to the Public Research Institute, it's a grouping of, uh, uh, it's a grouping scholars use for denominations such as the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, the Presbyterian Church USA, and the United Methodist Church. Since then, those denominations have been on a downward spiral Today, they represent only about 10 to 13% of the population, hmm. according to surveys compiled by researcher Ryan Burge. And, of course, Ryan Burge is not like some super friendly guy to the conservative cause <laughs> on this particular issue. You know, I actually wrote something for World Magazine uh, responding to something that he had published in the Wall Street Journal. But, um, you know, the, the stats are the stats. So why <laughs> – why does anyone think this is going to work any different? Maybe you're getting at something, though, Michael. Maybe, maybe there's just a kind of short-term sort of keep the lights on. Let's not think about this too deeply. Let's maybe cross our fingers and hope it'll be different this time. Mm -hmm. You know, any, any thoughts about this, guys? I, I mean, I think there are a lot of things that have gone into it. I mean, we, we've talked about them show after show, the different things that have changed in the realm of, you know, understanding reality, creation, relationships, um, how we tend to ground these things now much more in the personal individual, you know, identity. Um, and, and so there are a lot of pressures from a lot of angles to, for people to be on board with this because the, the pressure is to basically charge anyone or any organization that will put a question mark over this, the move in this direction as an institution of hate, hmm. bigotry that needs to be silent, shut down, canceled and ruined. So the organizational protection is one side of it. Um, the other is I don't think that the theological imagination is in place in a lot of evangelical churches to know how to draw off of its rich resources to address this. Mm -hmm. 
They'll just quote a few psychological studies or a few Bible verses when there's a lot more that needs to go on to address the, the various arguments and books. And that's why it's great seeing a book come out and help to help equip lay people in particular with some resources that are more than than superficial. I, I know similarly in, in, you know, take, for example, the, the Episcopal Church up here in Connecticut. The doors are closing left and right. Mm. The churches are, are closing. Beautiful buildings that they basically took away from the, the the Christians that protested that shift and forced them out of the denomination. But now they can't keep it alive. Why? Because they're basically just reiterating what everyone else is in in the culture. And so it's nothing more than just one more form of social organization. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. it has it has nothing really right. of difference. Yeah, why, why should I why should I join your church when you say exactly the same thing uh, and, and expect me to give you money too? <laughs> you know, you know, I, I can get this you know right down there at um, X Y Z College. You know, I don't need yeah. you know to be a part of your organization to to, to you know it's just basically uh, everything I get everywhere else except Jesus added. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. uh, and we're not even sure anybody goes to hell anyway. So, uh, well, that, why, that's why right. Why Hell's been that. out of the window for a long time. <laughs> Right. God's love has been redefined. Um, anything, yeah. any, any, you know, and then you you will hear, you know, God creates me this way. So right. why would God create me this way and then hold me to account for making right. me this way? I mean, this is what I'm saying is we've moved so far away from the understanding of sin and right. the fact that, you know, we we kind of brought some of this on ourselves and there is a way out. There is a, there is a higher freedom. And more than that, it's not simply a higher freedom, you know, but it's actually the whole purpose I've been created to begin with is to be made like God. Mm -hmm. And something that is fundamentally unlike God is not only not good for me, but it isn't truly what is central to my identity as a creature. And so there there is none of this is being really addressed. And so they think they have you know, affirmation and love, but they just have a cheap substitute of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to get to this slippery slope comment you made a minute ago, Michael. But before we do that, I want to take a quotation from the article that gets right at your point, but it's coming from the other side, <laughs> uh, Tom. So here's here's the quotation. This is from, um, let's see, Stanley. Let me, let me just read the whole paragraph. Meanwhile, Stanley uh, has helped elevate the McDonald's ministry, this is a couple that are now involved, who's, I guess, one of their children uh, came out of the closet and instead of um, doing the hard work of confronting the, the child, they've gone along with things. During one pastor's conference at North Point, he introduced a video telling the McDonald's story and saying, we're dealing with real people in real relationships. It is relational because we're in ministry and because We've learned to distinguish between theology and ministry. We can figure this out. <laughs> that is so absurd <laughs> <laughs> at so many levels. But the fact that this um, opposition between ministry and theology could be entertained, you know, what does he think theology is? <laughs> you know, it's. Yeah. it's I, I would actually like to back up a little bit. Um, I think that that the problem, you know, we we look at this as if the problem is acceptance of homosexuality. 
And that's the current manifestation, but there's a lot of the iceberg under the water uh, with that. Um, I, I would actually go back to the abandonment of the idea of um, that uh, contraception is wrong. Right. Uh, because what that does is it says that, you know, I mean, if you look at Aquinas, sex has multiple purposes, but reproduction is one of them. And, and in a physiological or biological sense, that's the primary purpose of it. And yet we suddenly started arguing, well, it's not really about <laughs> reproduction. It's about all right. the, you know, it's about, it, it, it's, it's about uh, what Aquinas called the unitive function, you know, uniting husband and wife together. Well, that's great. Except if that's all that sex really is, and then let's add in effective contraception with the pill, let's add in uh, no-fault divorce. Um, you know, what we're doing is we're cutting off sex from reproduction. With in vitro fertilization, we're actually producing babies without sex. So we get it on both sides there. We've severed the connection between parents and children and husband and wife. All of these kinds of things are what is laying the groundwork for the notion that um, sex is just something you do, mm -hmm. uh, maybe kind of with somebody you like. And if that's the case, what really is wrong with two guys or two women doing it together? Mm -hmm. yeah, you know, we've, 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 we've laid a foundation and now we're seeing what gets built on this. Uh, the way you tell if a slippery slope is genuinely slippery is look at the core ideas. And if those core ideas end up spilling in a particular direction, it will go there. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, one of the things that comes out in the article is they make connection. The, the author makes a connection. Her name is um, Mary Jackson. Let's see. Mary Jackson, mm -hmm. right. And she actually lives in San Francisco, I saw. Um, but she makes a connection uh, with what's going on in transgenderism, getting back to the slippery slope point. Glenn, that uh, really, uh, I remember when I was at Harvard, you know, I'd have, the, I'd have these conversations with people from the LGBTQ alphabet people. And I would, you know, I would, you know, you know, state that this was a slippery slope. There was no really internal, you know, no, no real, real reason why it should stop anywhere. That because of the, the nature of the underlying philosophy that to justify homosexuality, it, you know, this particular thing could also apply in different ways to, you know, what we see going on with transgenderism or even, um, you know, pedophilia and mm -hmm. bestiality or whatever. And they would all just shriek and, you know, tell me that I was, uh, you know, uh, making the argument for the slippery slope. But <laughs> as we've seen it, it, as you noted, Michael, it is slippery. Mm -hmm. So now as, as a pastor, I'm a pastor, you're a pastor. Um, you know, what are your thoughts about, you know, what this means at the local church level, ministering to families, relating to pastors who are, you know, in fundamental disagreement with us on these matters? How, how does this affect every, all that kind of stuff? Yeah, it, it's, I think we need to go back to boot camp theologically about our anthropology and about our doctrine of marriage, doctrine of sexuality. Um because, as Glenn pointed out, there isn't in the core ideas, there's no limiting principle to what can, where this can go. There isn't anything to prevent, you know, why is marriage only two people? Why not three, four, five, a dozen? Right. Um, 
why not animals? Why not robots? Uh, you know, it's it, these things sound absurd, um, at least to my ears in 2023, but these things won't be absurd in five years. And so, well, and they're not even absurd now to some people. I've heard those arguments made by some people mm-hmm. that these things should be just fine. Yeah. And so, we, if we, yeah. when we, and Michael, I would add one more to that it's not just our theology of sexuality, it's our theology of the body. Mm hmm. Which is something that Protestants in general and evangelicals in particular are not very good at. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to get into that a little more, Glenn, but go ahead, Michael. I I think the the quote that you read, uh, Chris, you said Stanley talked about um, distinguishing between theology and ministry. And before you read that, what I had rattling around in my mind is orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Um, And it seems like there's, we now have a pastoral care issue which usually is downstream of our orthodoxy. We say, okay, here's what the scripture teaches. Now let's apply this to your life. Now we have a pastoral care issue that has forced itself back into our theology and we're just creating accommodations. Because I don't think for most people, your garden variety Christian, they're not looking at the Bible and reasoning towards a exegetical view of sexuality that is gay affirming. Um, They've got a kid who's gay. They've got uh, an aunt or an uncle, a neighbor, a friend. Um, They have something, there's something personal in their life, or maybe they themselves um, have been viewing pornography and they have secret desires or hidden things that they don't want to talk about. And it's easier to keep the pastoral care issue, the heart issue, sin, holiness, obedience issue, kind of hidden from view where we're not really talking about the real thing. We're putting it out here and we're saying, well, here's what, you know, here's what that Greek word means. And Bible only mentions homosexuality six times. Jesus never talked about homosexuality and trying to find some gotcha uh, argument that right. can keep, keep the conviction away. And whenever you have a church that has an elder whose kid at 15 says he's gay, um, then that parent is caught between what his his church obligation as an elder as a steward of of the of the gospel what his wife thinks um and it it's kind of exploding in his own house and then he might start saying things in elder meetings and stuff not having really brought this out into the open um and before you know it it's this live grenade in the church when really it's it's a personal thing that hasn't been addressed um in in a person's life so in my church I, as i saw this taking place, realizing this is coming. Uh, our church has got a lot of younger people, a lot of little kids and babies. Most of most of the kids in our church are 10 and younger. And I'm thinking, okay, how many, how many of these kids, if you got a 50 kids in your church, given just current surveys, even if, among Christians, I mean, just playing the odds, we're bound to have some of these kids say that they're gay, trans, bisexual, lesbian, something. And it's because they, they're around other kids that are doing this and it becomes like a social contagion. So what can we do? What's the preventative measures I can put in place now? So having, having a, the luxury of this not really being a, an issue with our kids now, I, 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 I've begun to teach on it as much as, is reasonable to make sure that whenever 
the one parents are more mindful of the influences on their children, what they, who they talk to, they hang out with, what shows they watch. But also, if or when the moment comes when a kid says something like this, there's a there's a whole church full of people that have been well taught. They're ready to respond with love and care for the parents who are in crisis, and that will be a crisis of faith if if somebody's. Somebody said, my kid says he's a Christian, he loves Jesus, and yet he also says he's gay, which the Bible says that he will not inherit the kingdom of God. What do I do? It's a crisis of faith because of their love for their child. So we, I, I just think like churches that aren't prepared for the pastoral care situations, they're going to just follow what they think love will do and in a sentimentalized view of love. They're going to be like, well, Jesus would affirm. Jesus wouldn't cast him out. Jesus wouldn't judge somebody based on who, he, on who that person loves. And the doctrine will follow the the personal practice, or as the minis- the theology will follow the yeah. ministry, as Stanley said. Right. Well, let's let's think about this a little bit. Uh, kind of step back. So um, there are a range of things to consider. One is the prodigal son story, where the father didn't follow the kid to the sty uh, and didn't approve of what the kid was doing. There's the fact that there are any number of sins that. Uh, a child could fall into and, uh, uh, you know, undergo the discipline of the church and the parents would not blink about the legitimacy of the discipline. Let's say your child is a kleptomaniac. Let's say your child <laughs> falls into opioid addiction. Let's just say, you know, there are dozens of things you could think of that the parents would say, oh yeah, yeah, pastor, please, you know, you need to do something about this. You know, we can't just wink at this. We can't just excuse this. But but this, for, for some reason, this particular issue, is it just because of the super saturated sort of atmosphere that we live in, that now we are slipping in this area? Or are there other things maybe going on? You, you noted perhaps some secret sins that maybe even those in leadership are dealing with. Or uh, is it because um, you know, there's something maybe wrong at a pretty fundamental level with evangelicalism? Hmm. Uh, and I mean, you, you, you alluded to kind of a sentimentalized understanding of love. I, I do think that uh, lots of Christians in the evangelical world think about their Christian faith almost entirely as internalized. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't have any sense of God, of Christ's lordship over all things. They don't have any sense of the significance of his ascension. They don't have any sense of the future of the world uh, in terms of you know, uh, the triumph of the kingdom of God and the new heavens and new earth and these kinds of things. They don't even have a sense of the significance of marriage as kind of an emblem of the Christ, of Christ in the church. <laughs> they got nothing mm-hmm. uh, but their feelings. And everything we do in church is intended to uh, solicit certain kinds of emotional responses. Mm-hmm. And, and you, you've probably been in situations where, you know, the church service resembles a rock concert and a TED talk, <laughs> and what you got after the after the you know you know the the rock concert is okay. Now that the worship's over, we're going to have some teaching. You know that's mm-hmm. the that's sort of this understanding of worship that so many, particularly people in mega churches, uh, kind of think is just uh, kind of the default position. That isn't this obvious. I mean, if Jesus were here today, he would probably just do a TED talk approach. <laughs> <laughs> probably play guitar. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's, I think, the thing with with any approach to contemporary that doesn't also challenge the assumptions that are in, ingredients within what we import. And I think for a long time, evangelical churches, in their attempt to be 
you know, relevant, um, up-to-date, popular, they import without challenging rigorously the assumptions that come with it. So it isn't long before those assumptions have permeated the churches and the attitudes of the people to where basically Jesus is sort of a gloss on my best chosen life now. I mean, that's Jesus is the means to a kind of therapeutic, healthy, healthy self-image mm-hmm. that coupled with doing yoga a couple times a week and having a prayer journal, um, they're not, it's not really like uh, Glenn was hitting, hinting at, really the, the truthful enactment of a different understanding of reality and nature and our place in the ultimate significant of, significance of things. And so we are, as, as sort of, you know, unique individuals, celebrated as the center of, of this faith now. Um, and rather than us having a premise, which is th- the glory of God and partaking of, of who God is through Christ. Um, and so when, we're, when we realize we're in the middle of things rather than the center of things, um, and that, there's a difference there. <laughs> um, the center of things, me being central, uh, me being in the middle means I'm not the start, center, or finish, but I'm a, par- a participant in this, and I have to accord with the way that, that myself as a, a derivative creature um, needs to enact itself for my true flourishing and the fulfillment of of why I'm here and what we're here for. But uh, b- back to what Glenn was saying, I think is so fundamental, and I think you both have uh, hinted at it as well. Is is when when we are not clearly articulating and unpacking um, the gifts that we have as the kind of creatures and the kinds of relations that we've been designed for, as scripture clearly spells them out and assumes them throughout the nature of marriage. I mean, we were talking about marriage, uh, uh, one male, one female in union. As scripture talks very heavily about that union in ontological terms of oneness mm. to where scripture will say, don't you know that if you do X with a prostitute, you have become one? Mm-hmm. Now think, right. of, think of what's going on there. We're so removed from that kind of ontology and par- participation in the significance of a truthful enactment with reality versus a sinful one, that we don't really think that, you know, we just think, okay, if we just kind of casually ask for forgiveness, you know, there hasn't been something fundamentally done. Whether on the ontological level, whether we're feeling it right now or not, the consequences have been done. So our embracing of these kinds of relationships, which we think are just sexual, we are actually doing things on the on deeper spiritual levels that are creating havoc and chaos and 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 consequences that we may not yet have an antenna for. But I think seeing the trans movement in that alphabet uh, spread is really a telling sign that that things are being damaged on the on the spiritual level, and it is wreaking havoc on families and children. So, uh, Tom, you, you use a term that we use many times in the show, but I think we might have some people listening to this show uh, who haven't listened to us before. And the term is ontology, ontological. Can you uh, define that for folks? Yeah, ontology just really has to do with the kind of beings that we are. Um, what are we? 
You know, well, we're derivative, we're creatures. That means we we get everything from God, we're sustained through God, and we're made to be fulfilled by God. So that already doesn't make us the central reality. It already makes us derivative. But besides that, we're creatures in relation to other creatures. Those relationships are fundamental to who we are and what we are. We want to start with our identity. It isn't our self-chosen desires or image of ourselves. It's the relationships we have. It's our relationship first to God. I am the Lord your God. Above me there is no other. It's our relationship to our neighbor and ourselves. Love your neighbor as yourself. But it's our relationship to our family, right? Honor your mother and father, right? Why? Because that's fundamental to the kind of creatures that we are for our true flourishing and embodiment of what we're created to be. And then our so all of these relationships are not incidental or only significant if we bring we choose them or bring meaning. They have a claim on us. And the part of their claim is that they are formative and constitutive of our very identity. And when we think we're the ones who are creating our, our identity or merely expressing it, but we don't take those claims into consideration. We're doing a lot of damage to ourselves and to our children and everything else. So it has really to do with the kind of being that we are as, as made in the image of God and, and uh, connected to other creatures. Yeah, I'd, get into I'd like to jump ahead. in here. Yep. The, yep. the reason why homosexuality is considered a separate thing is because of the issue of identity. We, uh, the, the uh, churches have bought into the idea that your identity is centered around what you conceive yourself to be and your sexual desires. Right. And that, that is the fundamental problem because at that point, if, if you accept that, then yes, God made me this way. Mm-hmm. Then yes, um, you know, we we may have to recognize that acting this out acting out in this way is a sin but at the same time we have to recognize that this is who you were made to be and well wouldn't god want you to live out who you really are you know all of those kinds of questions come up as soon as you accept the idea that your identity is rooted in what somebody described as the pelvic issues <laughs> right. Yeah. Now, Desire. the other thing I, I would like to yeah. say, Michael, is if you don't jump in and interrupt, you're not going to get another word in your <laughs> entire time. So, well, I, I wanted to. I wanted to go clear. to. Yeah, I wanted to go to Michael, and I wanted to just kind of uh, get to some things that you know uh, you talk about in the article. So, uh, you uh, apparently there was a, a video that X29 produced. Uh, it was an interview with a church planter in the in the X twenty nine network, which is a church planting network that took a kind of uh, side B approach, I guess you could say. Maybe that's something you could help us understand too: side A, side B. But uh, there was some pushback. Uh, you had some thoughts on what was said. So this is something you know. If there was a a, a denomination or a group of people that we thought, oh, this will never happen mm-hmm. to these folks. It's it's the Southern Baptist Convention. <laughs> <laughs> and here we are talking about it. So uh, can you reflect on some of that with us? Sure. Um, so Acts 29 and Southern Baptist, there's some overlap, two separate organizations. Acts 29 uh, has core distinctives of being uh, 
complementarian. So um, certainly not egalitarian or feminist, but uh, complementarian originally meant to be, you know, male men are the leaders of the heads of the home and of the church. Um, but stop short of like a full patriarchal view. Complementarian, reformed uh, in Calvinistic soteriology and uh, missional, uh, so planting churches, evangelism. So, given the given the first two I mentioned there, you would think, well, certainly uh, they're going to be solid on the doctrine of sexuality. At least they're not going to um, go towards you know embracing homosexuality and affirming it. But I think the third one, the missional part, is uh, has has affected the first two. Because whenever we take this evangelism first mentality, the world is watching. We uh, have to always, and the, when I say the world is watching, I'm quoting uh, an infamous statement made at the Southern Baptist Convention about uh, you know a, a, an issue that was up for debate, and you know one of the um, I don't remember who the entity head was that was making the statement, but he basically said like we can't do this thing that would be biblically faithful, it might offend people that we want to reach right. with the gospel. So the world is watching is what he said. But whenever we put mission in front of our uh, the truth that we're proclaiming, then we're allowing the goats to determine what our messaging is. And that's what was happening in this this video that Acts 29 put out. So it was like a wasn't a formal training video. It was more of a guy saying, hey, I heard this talk and the way you presented your material was great. Uh, Let's talk about that. And then the guy who was sharing his perspective, um, basically, I, it, it, he took what I would consider a very subtle but but obvious um, pandering approach where you treat the LGBTQ sen center uh, as a victim of some something that has happened to them and they are in need of nothing but compassion and sympathy um so he, and, and all there was so there were, it was so buzzwordy so it was like we want to move yeah. <laughs> toward um this this gay person and tell them that you know, Jesus loves you and you know he he is for you and we as Christians we have marginalized and oppressed at times the LGBTQ community and he just said these things that I was like you are pandering to unbelievers in order to win them, but what you're doing is giving them a message that is hardly different from anything that you might hear on CNN or in a college classroom. And ultimately, you're undermining the truth that you're proclaiming. Um, and I think it, it is a it, it is a harmful message because it it tells that person that their sin is not truly sinful. Therefore, the God that we're calling you to worship is not truly holy, um, or at least whatever holiness is, it includes um, your 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 sexual orientation or your sexual desires. The sexual desires themselves aren't bad. Um, you're you're no worse off than you know some you know some teenager who said a curse word because um, all sins are equal. It it, it, it flattens out. Uh, it it. it I find it just to be a harmful message that does not truly call them to repent. And there's no life in that. There's no hope in that because there, there's no call to repentance. So it's like, you know, God affirms you in the sin that when I read my Bible, that sin is uniquely harmful, uh, uniquely dishonoring to, to God because it is dishonorable passions, he calls it. God gave them over to a debased mind, Romans 1 says. 
And yet, here modern evangelicals that are supposedly complementarian and reformed are saying uh, this, treating them as though some they caught some disease and we need to just give them treatment right. and therapy, but no call to repentance. And it was it was pretty frustrating. It'd be it, it yeah it'd be it'd be uh, maybe even more I guess uh, excusable if if we were treating them as though they were diseased and wanted to cure them. What what I get yeah. the sense of is is that that's not even on the on the table. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the transformation at all is not uh, even. In, the disease in, is the mean Christians that aren't affirming you. Yeah, that's right. That's the flip that's going on there. That, that in, in the left, uh, in mainline, Protestants have been doing that for ages, right? That, they, that the conservatives or the traditionalists are nothing more than the carriers of past bigotry, prejudice, and oppression. <laughs> and the, the real gospel is to liberate you from them. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was Bishop Shelby <laughs> Spong's whole mission, mm -hmm. right? Right, right. <laughs> Would you like to establish a privatized banking system that will help you separate from the mainstream banks and get more control over your money? Join a growing community of families, business owners, pastors and churches, yes, even churches, that are learning to establish and manage a privatized banking system and enjoy the safety of guaranteed tax-free growth perpetuated by the amazing power of uninterrupted compound interest. Don't wait for the next crash. Contact Private Family Banking. They are here to help fuel the future of the family and the church with multi-generational wealth building. See our contact information in the show notes below or just email us at banking at privatefamilybanking.com. Can I ask a question here? I I just ran into the expression side A and side B. Can I get a definition of that? I literally yeah, just ran into it earlier today, and I'd never seen it before. Yeah, it's right. made it circle. It's circulated in the reform world a little bit. I'm familiar with those things, but Michael, why don't you go ahead and explain it? Um, side A, uh, well, well, side B is basically a. Uh, it, it's intended to be um, an accommodation to sexual orientation where um, – so a side B would be somebody – like the Revoice Conference. It would say like you you can technically, in terms of the theological statement that you would sign, affirm traditional biblical teaching on sexuality. Um, so but, – but I'm going to call myself a gay Christian – and allow that moniker to define me as a, you know, as I'm a gay Christian. I want to, and, but the, the, the only difference is like, I'm not acting out on it. So I'm choosing to be celibate. I'm not, you know, not going to sleep with other people. And so I want to still keep the rules, but the inner disposition, I'm going to affirm that as a legitimate orientation and not seek to mortify it. In fact, we want to celebrate it, which is what, like what Revoice did. The, it's like we gay it's like I remember one guy, uh, I think it was Wesley Hill that was talking about gayness uh, affects it colors everything I see. It affects the the art that I, I like to look at and the the movies I like to watch and the music and the friends I hang out with. And 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 there was one particular controversial remark that was made at a conference a few years ago where they were talking about, you know, the the queer culture and its redemptive form being represented in the new heavens and the new earth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, these people are really willing to go anywhere. Aren't they? but, yeah. They're creative. <laughs> Give them that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, losing sight of the overall, of the overall sort of uh, the vision of the bride of Christ and the groom, 
the fact that we're not to be married in heaven on an individual basis is somehow uh, an excuse for mm-hmm. kind of a gay kind of ethos. But anyway, uh, yeah, that, those are all uh, you know worrisome developments. Uh, I will say, in the case of the PCA, I believe that we've turned the corner on this. Uh, we we have what we re- what I refer to as the debacle in Dallas, uh, and that was you know. Uh, four or so uh, General Assemblies back. Uh, but the response has been so strong uh, on the part of a re, uh, I guess, a reaffirmation of uh, Christian teaching on sexuality and the mortification of sin and our identity in Christ, and that being uh, exclusive of any kind of uh, hyphenated kind of thing, Mm -hmm. like gay Christian, whatever, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that uh, what's happened in the PCA is uh, the progressives are leaving. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've seen it on the presbytery I'm in. uh, And uh, it's it's almost like they're not even showing up anymore. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I I think that now, whether or not we might see some kind of uh, resurgence down the road, I can't say. But um, it, it, the, the, the things that were done, particularly in terms of getting, um, the lay leadership involved in the denomination. And this is remarkable when you think about it, you know, when you think of the early church, we needed bishops to come in and clean up stuff. Mm. Uh, now it's almost the reverse. We need the laity to rise yeah. up and, and, and depose bureaucrats and college and seminary uh, faculty and mm. clean house. It's almost the situation we find ourselves that, in. That's encouraging to hear about the the progressives aren't showing up um, because that that is unusual. Like historically speaking, there's it seems as though um, whenever there is some crisis between a conservative wing and a liberal wing, um, the conservatives keep the faith and the liberals keep the furniture. And that's right. <laughs> so they, yeah. they well, that, well, yeah, that's that's happening <laughs> definitely in the in the Anglican world. But the the surprise has been, especially with the I can't even pronounce it, the Kigali statement um, mm-hmm. with Gafcon, the the kind of global Anglicans, and then the ones in the U.S. that broke with the the, the Anglican Church is similar. It is rare for a break once it starts heading down that road. And, and of course, there is the losing of parishes, the losing of pensions. Mm. Um, so the stance is huge. And so having somewhere to go that keeps, keeps that form of worship and keeps it in the gospel is, is a rare thing. So to see people rise up and go against the grain is, is encouraging. And I, you know, I think, you know, I saw back in the older days of the Southern Baptist convention, the resurgence against liberalism in the, in the actual seminaries and institutions. And sadly, I mean, Charles Stanley was a figure that was a part of that. And sadly, his own son is kind of embraced. And you could see why, because there was a, there was a thin kind of evangelicalism that was still conservative in form, but it had a lot, it had, it had given away a lot mm-hmm. over the years. And sadly, the next generation is basically showing what it gave away too. But nevertheless, it shows you what can be done within a generation if people mm. are faithful and, and, and do resist. I wonder if it's because the liberals have out kicked their coverage. Uh, the, as the wheels have come off, even the most and we, and we have the, the the technological ability to communicate videos and images and stories very quickly through social media and Facebook um, to where some drag queen story hour, some pride parade where uh, grown men are twerking 
like full butt naked in front of little children, which I've, I've, I've saw, I've encountered these videos in, um, during pride month this last, last, last year. And when you can have aunt Sally and granny may seeing that it's like, they're like, it can, it can cr- turn them into activists. Whereas conservatives typically <laughs> are busy yeah. building households and discipling their kids right. and serving their church, right. but they just want to be left alone, assuming that, um, the world around them is going to keep on going, but they're seeing it's like, you know, the very foundational assumptions and institute. it's like, it just seems like the very core of our society itself is cracking up. And it, it's like, it really is an inflection point where I'm, I'm hoping that more, uh, normal normie as they call them, like just the more normie folks out there and, and regular red America get activated and, mobilized to go to their Southern Baptist convention or go to their Presbytery meetings or, um, you know, insist that their churches are being faithful in these matters. It, to me, that it's like a last stand kind of moment. Um, I hope I'm not being too pessimistic, right. but that, that it does seem to me the where, th- where things are. So how do you, how do you see things kind of trending, uh, in the worlds that you're in, uh, you know, X 29 and Southern Baptist convention. I have a friend named Josh Abatoy and the people over at new founding, you I know, know, Josh. They've, they've seen, yeah, they've seen, they seem to have been encouraged by some recent things that have occurred. Uh, so how do you see things playing out? Um, I'm in a college area, so I do have a bit of a window into, um, you know, the young people that'll be taking over soon. And also have um, teenagers in my own house. Um, what I've what I've seen a lot of it is anecdotal, but there is some some research I've seen to back it up too. Is that Gen Z boys are trending more conservative? Gen Z girls are trending more liberal. Um, there's a number of things one can conclude from that. Uh, the most obvious thing is that. Just compat like for conservative Christian men and women to find compatible spouses, it's going to be uh, there's just there's going to be a you know market deficit for the opposite sex. That, uh, but also right. the fact if it were reversed, I would be concerned in a different way. But if right. I think if I if I had to take my pick, I would rather the young men be trending conservative because yeah. patriarchy is inevitable. And I think these men are, are going, they will be forced into battle, so to speak. Um, they're always Latin American girls. I mean, you can always go. <laughs> there you go. I have one. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. A lot of them are they Catholic, mar- though. Mar- marvelous wives. That's right. <laughs> I, could, I could not ask for a better wife. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe these uh, northern girls should uh, I understand that they're not the only game in town. <laughs> so I, I think there's a there, there's it seems like extremes are are being played out. They're they're just the kind of the 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 most normal moderate type of people are becoming less and less. Uh, a lot of people are becoming more radicalized either by the worldly yeah. agenda, and I I do think it is empowered and enabled and infused with demonic power. Um, yeah. yeah, but we also have uh, the church. Um, the true saints, but also some co-belligerents that uh, can be useful in a, in a culture fight. They are also being awakened and stepping up to um, for for whatever whatever engagement needs to be happening. So, like you mentioned, Josh Abatoy, there's uh, Nate Fisher, uh, also that mm-hmm. they they work uh, together, and 
helping to, so I say like businesses, um, alternative institutions, alternative infrastructure, even. Um, I was talking Great. to Gabe Wrench a few weeks ago, who's the, the Fight Left Feast, the, those guys. Right. Um, he was talking about uh, even just building um, all, like an alternative to Vimeo um, because mm-hmm. they're mm-hmm. – I think they were either deplatformed or something like that because of the content. Um, and so he's like, all right, we, we need to build an alternative to Vimeo. Um, right. So I, I see that happening. Yeah, once you get, yeah, once you get kicked off of uh, YouTube, you go to Vimeo. And then if you get kicked off of Vimeo, where you go? <laughs> Two cans Rumble, and a string. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> That's, right. Yeah. That's right. Right. So thinking about uh, institutions, uh, sort of um, institutions that, we look to over, you know, in the last hundred years or, or so to kind of hold evangelicalism together. Um, you know, colleges, uh, like Wheaton college. I think that, uh, you know, my, my son and my daughter-in-law are both graduates of Wheaton college. Uh, but there are concerns that people have about that institution. Um, I think about Andy Stanley, you know, he's published by Zondervan. I noticed, mm. Uh, would Zondervan ever deplatform him over something like this? No, uh, Zondervan is owned not. by HarperCollins. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, that's right. I suspect not. Um, I do know that uh, you know something like Cross uh, Crossway, which is a you know kind of a niche uh, evangelical publisher, can also be kind of squishy. Mm-hmm. You know, a little bit uh, get you get you worried a little bit. So, uh, you have any thoughts on, about any of those uh, kind of larger institutions that we've looked to, like? Billy Graham Association or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, uh, where we started with this conversation from the article in World, um, you have the mainline slide and they die out. And it is the conservatives that end up being, it's almost like uh, the, it's probably a misapplication of scripture, but I'll say it anyway, but you know, <laughs> talking about the wood, hay, and stubble that's burned off and what's pure remains. It, it, it seems like, you know, at an institutional level that, that does play itself out because conservatism is not just an ideology. It is the truth of the gospel and the power of God and the spirit is at work where his truth is proclaimed and true churches are, are, are planted and and thrived. So I, institutions will go liberal um, unless there is some stalwart there who has, is in a position to oppose it or a group that can oppose it. Like the Southern Baptist, they had the conservative resurgence of the eighties that was a, you know, pretty miraculous turnaround, but there's a need for another one. But I think on the whole, um, there's, there's going to, the, the optimism that I have is that God's word is true and God's power is, it accompanies the faithful preaching of God's word. And it, it, if these different institutions and churches and so forth, um, would, some of them are beyond repair. Um, mm-hmm. I think they've, they've sort of crossed over to the other side to where th- there's, there's no climbing back up the cliff. Um, mm-hmm. I think there are a handful that are maybe, um, so Crossway may be one that, uh, could, you know, like world magazine. Um, they, mm-hmm. they, they seem to have turned, uh, in a more positive conservative direction. Um, perhaps something like that could happen at Crossway because they do have, they, 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 they pay the bills, from the donations and generosity and support of naive conservatives who don't know what's happening behind the scenes. Um, So the more exposure they can be whenever these things happen, there's quick accountability um, that will 
spook the leaders at least into um, not actively promoting, you know, heterodoxy, yeah. things like that. I think there there are some positive things. Generally speaking, um, it, it's almost like uh, this diseased body of evangelicalism has a lot of dying to do before it's totally dead. Um, yeah, it was, wasn't it Burke who said there's a lot of ruin in a civilization? You know, <laughs> that, in other words, things can go on for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Like when I think about Crossway, there are you know obviously great things. I mean, they they published Carl Truman's book. Mm-hmm. I think Rosaria Butterfield's latest book is with them. And so there are a lot of positive things there. But they're li- literally right down the street from Wheaton College. And, and so is uh, Christianity Today. And I, I more or less consider Christianity Today uh, gone. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I felt that it was gone 20 years ago and everything that seemed to have occurred since has only confirmed my conviction, <laughs> you know, anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. If I can just sort of talk about institutions here, um, liberals in general have been far better at playing the political and institutional game than conservatives have been. Um, the, the one that is the glaring case in point for me is the formation of the United Church of Christ, where you have a whole bunch of different denominations that came together, and they actually had a separate mission board hmm. that, that they had created that was going to be separate from the denomination to make sure the money went into proper missionary activity. And that was the intent. The denomination got control of the board after the denomination is established. The denomination got control of the board, and then the board dissolved the mission Hmm. agency altogether, and all of the funds got funneled straight to the main denomination. Hmm. You know, they're, they're, they're really, really good at figuring out ways to game the system to push it in the direction that they want it to go. Well, you know, you know, we're from New England. We, we, the old joke is UCC, you know, United Church of Christ, Unitarians considering Christ. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it, you know, basically, the, the thing I've observed is that uh, the progressives, the liberals, whatever moniker you want to use, they've got a nose for money and a nose for power. But when the money is gone and the power is gone, they're gone. Mm-hmm. And th- across New England, we have, you know, what you are talking about, Tom, with the Episcopal Church, uh, dying congregations who can't get a pastor, and the only person that will respond is the Bible college grad who says, <laughs> I'll take it. Mm-hmm. And the next thing you know, 10 years later, I can think of six churches off the top of my head uh, where uh, the church is suddenly healthy and orthodox. Mm. And so there's a mission field in, you know, these um, areas that have died, uh, where the church has died, but there are still, uh, you know, buildings and there are still people who need to hear the gospel. And, um, but you got to take the long view. I mean, you got to be willing to go in to a pretty depressed and depressing (laughs) environment and just dig it out. Hmm. It's almost like planning a church, but maybe even with an ad- added level of difficulty. At least you have a building, mm-hmm. but then you have to pay f- to keep it heated. Yeah, <laughs> you know, just all these different things that go into it. But uh, so you know, the wheat and the tares that grow together. There are some signs of, of life in New mm-hmm. England, but it's where 
the UCC has died. But as a church planter and having my finger on the pulse uh, of the church world and what people respond to, um, one of the things that, that I think is a very hopeful thing, a hopeful call to action, I suppose, um, is something I remember Rush Limbaugh saying when I used to listen to him many years ago. He said, conservatism works every time it's tried. Um, that's, that's a worldly insight uh, from a, a man that I, I don't believe is a Christian. Um, nevertheless, just if, if, if we were just to not, not to, I think the spirit will, the spirit of God will bless the preaching of his word faithfully. If we were to just look at it from purely, uh, you know, a, a market standpoint, a, a solidly conservative church, when they throw up their signal flares and they say, Hey, we're over here. Uh, and we still believe in Jesus. We still believe in the truth and the inerrancy of God's word. We still believe that Christ is victorious and the gospel. Like the sheep are starving in these yeah. other congregations and they hunger yeah. for uh, green pastures. And if conservative churches, if they, if, the thing is like there is a short term pain that they have to endure of dealing with the the opposition and the the fear and the you know the winsome minded people and all of that in their church that doesn't right. want to offend non-believers or whatever but then if they can get over that hump there is safe harbor or safer harbor that can be found right. by uh, doing faithful ministry and I, I, I do believe just in, in my my belief in Christ that God will typically bless those sorts yeah. of endeavors and those other ones, the, yeah. the spirit has departed from the liberal yeah. churches. Well, and the good news is we're on the winning side. Amen. And uh, even though uh, we might look up at the clock and see, you know, or see the scoreboard and see that we're down, it seems like, by an insurmountable, uh, you know, uh, score, <laughs> uh, we also, we, we have the benefit of knowing that the, in the end we win. I, in fact, I, this brings back to something, brings to mind something. I remember back when the United States beat the Soviet Union in hockey in the, <laughs> yeah. the Winter Olympics at Lake Placid. <laughs> I actually got the news before the show was broadcast, you know, so it was, t it was tape delay. So I actually knew mm. that we won, but as you're watching it, you're like, can you, they possibly win? <laughs> this yeah. this Russian team is so much better. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, anyway, so we've got, we've got a, a, a final score and uh, that should encourage us say by the way it's been great to have you with us here michael and if you want to read michael's book here's a here it is you can get it wherever better books are sold is there a particular place michael where we should send people to to buy it i know that uh you know uh the amazon people like to think that they control the world <laughs> but you know if that's the best place to get it fine but if there's another place let us know uh print versions are uh amazon and Amazon affiliates. Um, the there's an Audible version that's on Audible, which is an Amazon, but also Canon Plus. Their app. Um, if you subscribe to Canon Plus, the audio version is also oh, available great. there, and I, I do the reading on that recording. It sounds pretty good. I thought yeah. it turned out well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Nice. Nice. Nice stuff. Anything else you want to uh, maybe leave with us? Uh, maybe other ways that people can kind of follow you, keep up with you. Um, I'm pretty active on Twitter, um, or X now, as they call it. Um, <laughs> my handle is dmichaelclary, um, and I have a, a website, same thing, dmichaelclary.com, substack, dmichaelclary.substack.com. Um, those are three of the places where I, I, I tend to be the most active, uh, but, but Twitter is the main one, and the others are linked there. 
Okay, great. Well, we'll we'll put links in the show notes to all those. Thank you. Anyway, thanks a lot, Michael. We really appreciated it. And uh, anything you guys want to say as we wrap up, uh, Tom Glenn, maybe you've had a chance to say. Not really. No, I think we covered it. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, we we want to thank uh, some people who've recently uh, become supporters of the podcast on Patreon. Uh, and uh, now that you've gotten all the way to the end of this episode, you get to hear me talk about Patreon. If you want to support uh, our work, uh, and it is much appreciated, we do have bills to pay. Uh, uh, Tom and Glenn and I, we don't take any money from the show, but uh, there are people who do get paid, um, and they need uh, the funds. We need the funds to be able to pay them. And uh, when you support us on Patreon, that helps that way. You get an advance um viewing of the show so if you're on patreon and following us there you'll get to see you know an episode of several days before other people do and then we have some special events and merch and all that kind of stuff you know how it goes it's the same thing everybody does the same stuff <laughs> but anyway uh thanks very much for listening to this episode and thanks a lot michael thank you for having me uh, yeah great bye-bye folks bye-bye The Theology Podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you like this podcast, you might enjoy another one of our podcasts, Got a Minute, featuring Larson Hicks and Rich Lusk. Theology, philosophy, economics, politics, and more for normal people.